Morning, guys. Happy Mother's Day. I know we keep saying it, but you can never thank a mom enough, right? So, Amen. That's right. That's right. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel 22. We'll be reading out of that, that passage, continuing our series, uh, Cultivating a, a Heart for God. And now, I, I've never been scuba diving before. Uh, but, um, you know, I did a little bit of research. I actually called Rick Landis uh, as I was prepping for this sermon. He gave me some information because I, I had heard about this, but didn't really know a ton about it. So I, I wanted to kind of go to a little bit more knowledgeable individual. Uh, but there's this thing called uh, nitrogen narcosis, also known as narcs, if you ever go scuba diving. Uh, and, and what happens is, is that as you go scuba diving, uh, they say that you can go about the 33 feet and you won't have any problems, that no issues whatsoever. But as you get beyond 33 feet, what starts to happen is the pressure starts to increase and it starts to double and it starts to double and it gets harder and harder on the body. Um, and one of the issues is, is that for some reason, that as we get lower, the pressure causes the nitrogen inside the oxygen tank, so the nitrogen is part of the, the chemical to help you breathe underwater, that nitrogen is more likely to then get absorbed into your actual body. Okay? And the more nitrogen that your body starts to absorb from that oxygen tank, it starts to cause problems and it really begins to impair a lot of your actual functions. Um, and they say that the deeper you go, the, the intensity increases and it becomes more and more problematic for you. And so they say typically when, it, when you first start to get the narcs, uh, it, you feel lightheaded, a little numbness, uh, kind of a carefree euphoria, kind of, they kind of associated kind of like you're, you're tipsy or you're drunk. Uh, and then as you get further down, it can impact your reasoning ability. Uh, it can impact your, your dexterity, your motor skills, right? So, so how your body is actually functioning. Uh, emotional instability and irrationality begins to increase. So people will eventually start to panic. Uh, they'll, they'll start to kind of get afraid and, and become irrational on what's going on. They'll, they'll start making poor judgments. Uh, they even say that people can become disoriented and not know where they are in the ocean. So am I swimming up or down or side to side? They don't have any idea. And in some really bad cases, people actually start to hallucinate. Uh, and you can become unconscious uh, if this problem's not rectified. And, and for some people, when they're doing this, they don't even have any idea that it's actually happening to them. And so then this also causes problems because one, people might just start to surface really quickly and not realize that they're doing it, which that can cause a whole other set of problems if you don't know about scuba diving. The other problem is sometimes people don't know that their oxygen tank runs out and then here they are you know, under the ocean and their oxygen has run out. So, so the narcs is a, a very, could be a potentially deadly problem uh, if it's not taken care of. Now, the, the nice part is they said, if this happens, all you have to do is actually swim back up to the surface. And they say the moment you start swimming back up, those problems start to dissipate. And if it's really, really bad, they say that once you get to the surface, you give it a couple minutes and you're perfectly fine. So here you are underwater, right? You have this potential chaos happening, all these potentially like deadly problems, and all it takes is just to go back to the surface for a little bit, and then all of a sudden your body readjusts, the nitrogen's back out of the system and you're, you're okay. Now, as I said, I've never been scuba diving. I don't know how many of you have, but I think what has gone on under the surface of the water is probably something that we can actually associate with our own lives, 
right? Because I think we've all experienced kind of that feeling of like chaos and disorientation that's going on, right? And we panic and we become rational and we don't know what's happening and what's going on. And so as we go through the scriptures today, we're going to talk about this idea of what happens when we become spiritually disoriented. Okay? What, what happens in our lives where we feel like there's this chaos that exists? And how do we reorient ourselves right, back to a proper place? Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to compare the lives of uh, Saul and David. Again, two individuals uh, that we're, we're, we're looking at here in the scriptures. And this is going to help give us a better context of how is it that we deal with it. Because both of them are in a state in 1 Samuel 22. Both of them are in a state of spiritual disorientation. But the difference is the way that each one responds to them. And that's what we want to take a look at, is what is the response to each of these individuals. Okay? Now, just to give you some background again, if you haven't been here for a while or been part of the sermon series, we've been going through 1 Samuel. And so one through seven, we have Hannah. She, you know, she can't get pregnant. She eventually has a son, Samuel. Uh, he becomes a prophet, a priest, and eventually becomes uh, kind of the, the leader of Israel. And so as we continue on in, in eight through 12, Israel gets to a point and says, we want a king just like every other nation. And God, through the prophet Samuel, says, that's not going to go well for you. And they're like, no, we want a king. We want a king. And Samuel's like, guys, this isn't going to work. It's not going to go well, but they still demand a king. And so we get King Saul. And then in 13 through 15, we then see the immediate ushering in of, of Saul's leadership. And with it, by the second year, it's already a mess, right? He, he, he makes the sacrifice what he's not supposed to. He fails to get rid of the Amalekites. And God basically says to Saul, he says, listen, you know what? I'm going to strip away the kingdom from you. And I'm going to give it to someone that has a heart for God, right? So, so within the second year of them wanting a king, again, as we said, they already have to get rid of it. And so this king will eventually become David. And so that's where we see that in 1 Samuel 16, right? He, he, he slays Goliath. He becomes popular. He starts serving under Saul. Uh, and then he gets anointed as king. And then eventually Saul gets a little bit jealous there uh, and then tries to basically kill him. And then so for the next couple of chapters... Um, and David is on the run for his life, right? He, he's a marked man at this point. Uh, and that passage right there, 1 Samuel 18, 7 to 9, it says, As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, only thousands. What more could he get but this kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Okay, so, so that's letting you an insight into the heart of Saul where we're at right now. Okay, so uh, David's a marked man. He's on the run uh, and he is fleeing for his life. So let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 22. And let me, let me read through this passage here. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were with him were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. And about 400 men were with him. And from there David went to Mizpath in, in, in Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Harath. 
Okay, so David, as I said, on the run, he's actually gone from Jerusalem over to the Philistines. And he spends time with the Philistines, uh, and then he leaves the Philistines, and he comes back to what's known as the Cave of Adullam. Now, if you don't know anything about this cave, it is a massive cave, because you're probably thinking, how does he have 400 people in this cave? Well, it has multiple exits and entrances, and they say that there are some parts of this cave that are like 20 feet wide, right? You know, and at least 20 feet high. So these are just parts of the cave. So the idea that you could house 400 people in here is actually not unrealistic. So if you're kind of thinking like, you know, it's just a little tiny bear cave, that's not the case at all. It's this massive cave. And so he's gathered all these people have come to him and then he heads off and he goes over to Moab. Okay, now the reason why he then goes over to Moab, who was another enemy of Israel at this time, uh, is that Saul is at war with them and he's, he's thinking, okay, they already don't like Saul, maybe they'll welcome me. And David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab herself. And so he's basically making the appeal to say, listen, can, can you take care of, like, my great-grandmother's, like, grandkids? And, and, you know, can we just stay with you for a little bit? And he says, I, I got to go off and I got to go seek the will of God. So they're going to stay here with you. Okay, so, so that's where we're, we're at right now. And then, and then Gad comes and says, listen, you can't stay here anymore. Okay, you can't stay in this stronghold. Now, this stronghold was pretty much like a giant hill that was wide open, and anybody could stand up there and see all around. So if, if Saul was coming, David was going to be able to spot it miles away. But Gad says, you can't, you can't stay here. I'm going to bring you back to the place right, of, of Judah, and you're going to stay in the forest of Herath. Now, David's probably thinking, I feel pretty safe here. I'm going to see what's coming, but now you're bringing me back back to the place where Saul is, who's trying to kill me. And this forest is not like this nice green lush forest. It's actually pretty barren and pretty arid and pretty dry. So he's like, you're, you're bringing me to this place that really has nothing, that's offering no protection to the very place that Saul wants to try to kill me. Gad's like, yes, that's, that's what you need to do. Well, David being David goes back. Okay? Now, let's just pause on David for a moment. And we're going to take a look at Saul, and I'm going to come back to David, because I want to see Saul's real reaction before we come back and really try to understand what's happening with David. So let's continue to read now further. 1 Samuel 22, 6 through 8. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul's spear in hand was seated under the tamarisk tree in a hill at Gibeah, with all of his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give you all of your fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. Okay, so Saul catch winds of what's going on here. And he says, guys, I don't understand what's going on here. I am your leader. But nobody tells me what's happening. What, what, what did he promise you? Did, did, he, did he promise you a field? Is, that, is he going to give you land? Is, is he going to make you a commander of army? You tell me. And not only that, but my own son is in on it, and nobody says anything to me. I want to know what's going on. Okay? So at this point, we can see that Saul's starting to lose it a little bit here. right? And so he, he's, he, he's feeling this, this conspiracy is going on against him, and he's a little bit wary of every, everyone. right? 
Okay, so now, now we're going we're to continue further. Verse, uh, verse 9. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, who all of your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of the father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. So as he's standing there, Saul's standing there with his, his own people, and he's like, what's going on, right? You're all against me. Nobody's willing to speak up. And then all of a sudden, we get this guy, Doeg, to speak up, an Edomite. Now, what we probably know about Doeg is one of two things. One, he either fled from his home country of Edom and basically joined with Saul, so he's not an Israelite, or he was taken captive as a prisoner, and brought back, and he's actually made the chief of Saul's shepherds, right? So he's the chief shepherd responsible for all of, the sh all of Saul's sheep. And he says, hey, I actually, saw, I actually saw him talking to the priest over at Nob. Well, he, he was over there. And so Saul's like, well, well, bring him over here. I want to talk to him. So he, he brings him back, and he says, hey, what's going on? What's the problem here? I hear you're talking to him. Now, just to back up a chapter here, when, when, Saul, when David was on the run, he stops at Nob, which is now where the tabernacle is, and all of the priests have gathered. And he's basically looking for insight, and he's looking for wisdom. And when he shows up uh, in that first chapter, Ahimelech says to him, he says, why are you alone? And David says, I'm on a mission. This is 21 verse 1. He says, David says, I'm on a mission and no one is to know about it. So, so David doesn't actually tell the priest the full picture here. So the priest is really left in the dark, and so he does what he normally would do. He says, what do you, need? you need food? You need prayer? You need me to inquire of God? You need a sword? I got a sword here. Remember the one that you, you, know, you slaughtered Goliath with, right? Or, or the sword from Goliath? Here, take his sword and go ahead. So he shows up, and Saul's like, what did you do? He's like, what do you mean, what did I do? It's the same thing that I've always would have done. I pray for people and I give them what they need, and I give them supplies, I don't get it. And he goes, and you're talking about David. David's like your most, everybody loves David. He's your most loyal guy. I don't understand what the problem is here. But again, Saul, in this irrationality, right, is accusing him of conspiring against the king. And Amalek is like, I am so lost as to what is going on. Okay? So he's in a state of complete confusion at this point. And everybody else is already like, we don't want to say anything here. Right? Everybody's already kind of got their backs against the wall trying to get out of there. So Saul's going to now make it even worse. So let's continue to read here. Verse 16. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech. You and your father's whole family... Then the king ordered the guards at his side 
turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. And they knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell him, did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. And the king then ordered Doag, you turn and strike down the priest. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, its men, its women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doag the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine as well. You will be safe with me. Whew. Not only does Saul decide I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to kill your whole family. And I'm going to kill the whole town that you live in. Right? We talk about fear and we talk about panic and irrationality. Right? Saul, is, he is headlong into this. And he says, that's it, slaughter these guys, kill them. And all of his commanders are like, I'm not, I'm not going near this, Saul. I get it. I'm standing here and I'm listening to you, but there ain't no way I'm touching these priests of God. And so he turns to Doeg, who is just a bloodthirsty, right, uh, you know, in it for himself, get rich, get rich quick scheme here, says, I'll do it. Right? And so he sends him in there, and he goes and he kills them all. And then they go to the town of Nob, and did you catch that? Not only do they kill the priests, but they kill the men, the women, the children, and the infants. And that word infants implies that it's still nursing on its mother. Saul has just engaged in an act of carnage. Right? Because Why? Well, we go back to this passage. As they sang and danced, Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He was angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? See, the pressure is growing on David or Saul. The pressure's coming down on him, and he feels it. And he, he says, I, I get it. David's going to get this kingdom. I just know he is. And the pressure's growing, and it's mounting. And the more that this comes down on him, and the more that it comes down, because now that David's on the run, people are fleeing for David. And he's feeling it even more and more. And so he takes this matter into his own hands, and he says, I will rectify the situation, and I will do what I need to do to fulfill my own desire. And if that means to kill, then I will kill. Because, see, Saul had the wrong perspective, right? See, Saul was confused. He was spiritually disoriented. Because he looked at this and said, this is about my kingdom, and this is about my people, and this is about my glory. See, it's never about my kingdom, my people, and my glory. Because it's always about God's kingdom, God's people, and God's glory. And see, that's what Saul got wrong. He misread the situation and thought it was all about him. And he was willing to do whatever he needed to do. 
And so just like how the nitrogen in a tank builds as you go further and that pressure gets in, right, is that nitrogen causes the body to act in ways that we shouldn't be acting, it's the same thing that happens near, right? He accuses official conspiracy. He says, you don't care about me. He accuses the priest, and then he decides, the only thing I can do is get rid of them, and he slaughters them. See, if we don't have a proper response to when we're spiritually disoriented, this is what we do. Think about a time in your life right now. Go ahead, take a moment and think. When have I been in a state of spiritual disorientation where I didn't know what was going on and I was confused? And we, we, we try to, to grab the reins ourselves. And what do we do? We cause fear and chaos and panic, not only for ourselves, but for everyone else around us. And you see it, right? Because you know what happens. Because when you're in that state, what does everybody do? Because they're afraid. They're afraid you're going to kill them. That's what happens when we don't reorient our lives the way that we're supposed to. So let's go back to David here for a moment. And let's see what David does compared to what Saul has just done. So we've already said that David's or Saul's response was to control the situation for his own desire. Well, David, in verse 3 there, says, listen, keep my parents with you, okay, and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me. So that's a pretty big difference, right? David says, I, I'm on the run. People are trying to kill me, right? This is not a good life. I need to seek the will of God. Right? Saul didn't do that at all. Saul said, I'll take care of it. But David says, I'll seek the will of God. Okay? So we don't really have much more than that, right? That's all the scripture says here right now is that he sought the will of God. Well, we actually do have more. The, the book of Psalms... Um, is a collection of poetic songs, right? It's actually uh, a translation of praise songs or songs of praise. Uh, and it's a collection of authors, David writing many of them, and, and there are psalms or songs of, of, of praise to God, songs of thanksgiving, songs of, of justice and, and God, vind God vindicating. There are songs of, of lament and just crying out to the heart of God and saying, God, you know, this is what's going on. And one of the problems that we do with Psalms is this. We go, Psalms is a book of the Bible, and then we just read it separately, completely unattached to the context of what has just happened, right? Because most of these Psalms, right, something has happened in this person's life. So when we look at this passage here, we actually have two Psalms that David writes in the context of 1 Samuel 22. We have Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Okay? And if we understand now what, what David is going through, and now we're going to read these two psalms, it should give us a better context to say, I get the emotion and I get the connection here of what David is saying. So, so let's read these two really quick. Uh, psalm 57. <clears throat> it says, Have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. 
He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. They spread their net for my feet. I was bowed in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from these people who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Again, the Psalms make a lot more sense when we understand the context, right? He's on the run. He's now in a place that's dry and barren. And he's like, God, how am I going to survive? Saul is somewhere right around the corner. God, I'm crying my heart out to you. So how does David spiritually reorient himself in a way that's appropriate? Well, we've already said, first off, he's seeking the will of God, right? Well, the first thing that we need to do is we need to acknowledge the situation, right? We see there in First Psalm 57, right? I'm in the midst of lions, ravenous beasts. They spread a net for me. They've dug a pit. And then in Psalm 142, they've hit a snare for me. No one is my right hand. So when you were on trial in ancient times, the person that was like your lawyer or your witness was always to the right of you. So he's literally like, there's nobody there. There's nobody there to help me through this. And he says, I have no refuge. I am in desperate need. See, a lot of times we get into these predicaments, right? And we don't acknowledge the situation that we're in because we don't want to admit just how bad it is. See, Saul didn't even understand his situation. Saul, Saul was making his own problems. But David said, God, I get it. I am at a place where the only thing that I can do is cry out to you. People right now are trying to kill me. People right now are laying traps for me. God, I, I get it. I am, I am here and I am ready to die. And so, God, I'm coming to you. And that's what we need to do. We need to acknowledge our situations in life. That when we are spiritually in chaos and, and, and spiraling out of control, we have to admit that. Because if we refuse to admit it, we can't make it any further down this process. The second thing that we need to do is now that we've admitted it, we have to go to the true source of salvation. 
Psalm 57, have mercy on me, O God. In you I take refuge. I cry out to you, God most high. I cry aloud, I lift my voice up, I pour out my complaint. Set me free from my prison. Right, the only person that lets us out of the prison is the prison guard or the judge. And that's Christ. And that's where David goes. He says, God, I'm coming to you because I know the only way out of this is you. I can't do this on my own. I can't get anyone else to do this. But God, I know you can set me free. And so many times when we're spiraling, what do we do? We go everywhere but God. It's not surprising that people turn to drugs and alcohol, right? Because the, the, the mentality is, is this, will, this will eliminate the reality. This, this will make my problems go away. Or, or we, we turn to some sort of spiritual meditation. Or, or we do penance. God, I, I got it, I messed up. If I just work really hard, God, will then you bless me? Will then you get me out of God? What if what if I what if I do all the, what if I go back to church and I do all these things, God? Then you'll love me again, right? And we make God's blessing an act upon our own selves. And for some people, we just turn to all kinds of false idolatry that exists in this world. And we turn to all other religions that all say the same thing. That if you want to find God, you have to work for it. And Christianity is standing there saying, you can't work for this because the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father but through me. My sins are washed away because my Savior died on the cross and shed it for me. And it's not only my spiritual eternal salvation, but every other problem in life that I go through, Christ is the Savior and the answer to that. And that's where David turned. And then after David turned there, this is what I love about this. He goes on and he says, God, you vindicate God, you rebuke those who pursue me. God, you send your love and your faithfulness. God, when I am fate, you watch over me. God, you are good to me. God, I am on the run. I have been in two foreign enemies in Philistine and Moab, and I'm on the run. And now you, you, this place where I felt safe, you brought me back to this forest that's barren and dry. And here I am saying, God, you are good to me. Because when we remind ourselves of who God is, when we remind ourselves of the truth, what happens? My heart, oh God, is steadfast. It is secure. It is firm. Our circumstances will always be there with us. And our circumstances will change. But the person and the character of God will never change. And David clings to those truths. And he says, no matter how bad this gets, God, I will not forget who you are. And when we remember those truths, that is what is able to help us endure the circumstance and the trials and the difficulties and persecutions. And we cling to it and we cling to it as hard as we possibly can. And when the pressure builds and it builds, we cling even harder to it. Because the moment that we let go of God... That 
is when we will fall. Psalm 112, 6 and 7 says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever and they will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast trusting in the Lord. And in Hebrews, we have these two passages where the, the book of Hebrews, people are getting wary of the persecution and, and they're starting to think, is there something else? And he says, no, 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 Christ is better than all of this. You will endure through this, but do not walk away from Christ. And Hebrews 6, 19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. And in 1023, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Christ is our anchor. Christ is our anchor in every situation. So when the storm comes and it pushes us back and forth and it's blowing us wherever, if we are not tethered to the anchor of God, we will get washed away in the storm. But David remembers who God is. And he says, God, I am here with you. Maybe you're going through something right now. That's hard and it's difficult. And I don't mean to belittle or make light of your circumstances because they are real and pain is real and, and hurt and sadness is real. And maybe you're saying, Adam, that's nice, but you have no idea how bad it really is. You have no idea what's going on in my life, Adam. And you're right. I don't know how bad it is because I'm not living your life and I'm not experiencing it. But God does. God knows everything that's going on. And God cares about you. And he says, I'm with you. But where is God in all of this? Why do I continue to struggle? Why doesn't God do something about it? No, God has done something at the cross. And God will someday bring his justice to light when he returns. And he will get rid of all sin and he will deal with the wicked and there will be no more pain and there will be no more suffering. But Adam, but Adam, what about now? I know it's horrible and we pray for you. Endure, endure, endure. And remember, God loves you and he is there for you. And when David remembered that, he's able to praise the Father. Be exalted, let your glory shine over all the earth. And I love that in Psalm 142. Set me free, not so I can enjoy life. Set me free, not so my life can be comfortable. Set me free, not so I can enjoy all the blessings of this world. But he says, set me free that I may praise you. Hallelujah, my God has redeemed me. When we properly reorient our lives, it ends in praise to the Father. So let me, let me wrap this up here. There may be some of you that feel like you're in the forest of wrath. Life right now is barren, and it's dry, and it's arid. And you are thinking to yourself, God, how am I going to survive? I'm going to die. Or maybe you're like one of the 400 that showed up. Maybe right now in life, you're, 
you're distressed. And you feel weighted down by the debts of life and you, you feel discouraged and you just want to throw in the towel. I remind you not to be dismayed because there is a hope. There is a God that if we cry out to him, he hears us. A God that will save us. But see, the problem might be right now how it was for David. Maybe you're like David living in Moab and you're living in the wrong stronghold right now. And so God is calling you back to the place of Judah. And he's calling you back to the place of God, which is the only stronghold that we actually have. And so just, just like a scuba diver, when he goes under the water and he gets the narcs because the pressure is built up and he's in a state of chaos, how does he eliminate that? He heads upwards. And that's what we need to do, right? And in a state of chaos, in a state of fear and panic, look up to the heavens, guys. Cry out to the Father and he will restore us because that is the only source that can restore a lost and weary soul. Let's pray. Lord, right now, there are people that sit in this pew and there are people that are online. There are friends and family that are struggling with some, some real, I don't even want to say difficulties, but there are severe issues that we are plagued with. Emotional, physical, financial, mental, spiritual. God, there are things that we wrestle with and Lord, I, I pray for those individuals right now. Lord, I, I ask that your spirit comes upon them and gives them a feeling of peace, that the, the feeling of mercy and grace is upon them, that they recognize, God, that you are there with them. And Lord, that they are willing to turn their hearts over to you, that they are willing to acknowledge their condition, to humble themselves and cry back out to you. And God, I pray that any one of these people that's going through that would not stand alone, but they would grab their brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I need help. Would you pray with me? Would you walk this journey with me? Would you stand arm in arm as we go through this? And may we as the body come around and embrace these individuals who we love so that, Lord, they can be freed from their prison all in the name to praise you. Amen.